2: Hi, I'm Brian Sullivan, and tonight you gotta spend money to collect money? That is the IRS's new plan to the tune of 80 billion of your tax dollars. Small dude. Protesters stormed BlackRock's office in Paris and set fire to restaurants, all because they want to raise the retirement age by two years. Here's something you won't hear from DC. Small businesses are going bankrupt at a higher rate than during the worst of the pandemic the author of a shock report is here to tell you why can chicago be saved one of the city's top business leaders joins us on the massive challenge facing its new mayor and starbucks much hyped olive oil coffee reportedly is not going down too well with some customers and we mean that literally that and much more in the next hour so belly up or buckle up last call is up right now All right. Good evening here and good afternoon, everybody out west. Thanks for being here. We're going to get to all those stories soon. But first up on Last Call, Elon Musk may be trying to do the most Elon Musk thing ever, putting out part three of his master plan for 100 percent global renewable energy. No more fossil fuels. No more oil and gas. No more nuclear. At least no new new nuclear. Just wind, solar, hydrogen and some other technologies. Musk laid it all out in a 41-page white paper out today. The projected cost? A cool $10 trillion. That is about 10% of total global GDP. But Musk says that number will be $4 trillion less than the current cost of our current energy makeup of coal, natural gas, and oil over that same 20-year period of time. So how does Musk break down some of these specifics? Well, here's a taste. $428 $428 billion for new solar panel factories, $1.1 trillion for electrolyzers, whatever, the, whatever those are, I don't know. $1.7 trillion for transportation for all the mining and refining needed to go into the raw materials. Remember, here's the thing about green. It does take a lot of giant tractors in hard-to-reach places to get to all that nickel, manganese, and cobalt. $1.8 trillion spent on new car and truck factories, and more than $2 trillion for chemical battery factories. Listen. This is Musk at his best. This is an audacious plan. It is exciting. And you can fault Musk for many things, but not for having no big ideas. But this is 100% renewable. Is it even possible, given battery storage issues, the demand on mining, child labor problems in places like the Congo, no power lines, oh, and that ten trillion dollars that we just kind of talked about. Let's dig in a little bit deeper. Open it up to our discussion and our opening panel. With us tonight is founder and CEO of GLJ Research, Gordon Johnson; Deepwater Management managing partner, Gene Munster; and Liberty CEO, Chris Wright. I feel like this is Fast Money three, but we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna do it in a last call way, guys. Uh, Gordon, I know you're a giant fan of Musk and Tesla. I I'm kidding. We say that because we know that, that Gordon has been very negative on Tesla. I love this plan, though, because he lays out the numbers. Do you buy it?
3: Listen, we don't buy it. Let's go back to master plan part two in 2017, where Musk promised that he was going to do high passenger density urban transport and have a full autonomous uh, Tesla fleet of robotaxis. That was 2017. As of right now, you know, April of 2023, he's achieved none of that. Listen, I think this is ridiculous. I think that the idea of replacing distributed baseload fossil fuel energy with intermittent peak load you know, uh, energy is, is, is very dangerous, as we're seeing in Europe. And I think really what this is is a money grab. I think Musk is going to use this to raise capital. Um, and, you know, he didn't say any of the things that a lot of people wanted him to say. You know, uh, a $25,000 car, talk about robo taxes, et cetera. So I think this is actually kind of ridiculous to say that we're going to replace fossil fuels with renewables. Batteries are not there. Well, that, okay, um, so that, that's so. Right that, let's
2: stay on the technology. Gene Munster, we're going right down your alley, my man. And that's the dirty secret about wind and solar power, particularly wind, is the best batteries, commercial scale batteries in the world last about twelve hours. That's it. You got to use the energy as you make it. Everybody says, well, don't worry, batteries are going to get better. But battery technology has not gotten that much better over decades. What do you see coming? Is storage going to be available yeah, to storage have is this? It's a big deal. It's a huge deal. Uh, so I,
4: yeah, I think that. In principle, from uh, just like a, a lab perspective, his plan makes sense. And I would uh, point to, let's look at the grid piece. There's obviously lots of elements of this plan, but just the grid piece. There's a company that we're investing in called Antora Energy. They do grid scale batteries. It basically is a massive battery that's used by uh, energy companies uh, to store renewable energy. How and long it's do it's they last? The how, how long cost. will it last? Did the, how long do the batteries last? Well, these no, are no, 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 the energy in, in the battery, right? the
2: windmill goes and it puts the energy yeah, yeah. in the battery, not days. even a day.
4: Days. Okay, a days. Couple, couple days, it's, good, this, more than a day. Yeah, th- these are like the size of a semi-truck kind of uh, uh, type of batteries here, but they uh, they, they can hold that, that energy density. And so but my point is you can go through, there's 540 assumptions in this plan. It's massive, 72 citations, and as you mentioned, the size of the document So there's a lot there. But I think from just the first-pass principles, I think that this does stand the test of uh, being able to uh, at least uh, show the world where it can go. The Congo and all these other areas, uh, it's going to take a lot longer than 20 years. But from a technology standpoint, this can happen. This plan can happen.
2: It it, It certainly can, Chris. But here's the thing. We talk about batteries and intermittency here. Natural gas, whatever people think of it, natural gas is available pretty much forever right? You can store it. You're not going to, you maybe lose a little bit of it. The wind power, you need to really build about two to three times what you would actually need, correct? Because then, you know, the wind doesn't blow over here, but maybe it's blowing over there. And then the batteries last a day or two and that's it. What do you make of Musk's plan? I I, I do like the fact that it's, it's audacious.
5: I like audacious. Unfortunately, it's just nonsense spreadsheet energy planning. There's so many things I, I could critique. Let me critique a couple. We've spent so far $4 trillion on wind and solar, and they provide 3% of global energy. So somehow another $10 trillion is going to get us the other 97%. And of course, we've started with the low-hanging fruit. And what's the impact then? Massive increases in electricity prices and destabilization of grids. Germany, the United Kingdom, California, the, the places that have gone the most all in, have more expensive, less reliable electricity with just this minor penetration. And of course, where most people live in East Asia or South Asia, they don't have great wind resources and they don't have great solar resources. Like in the low hanging fruit, we've had huge negative impacts of spending $4 trillion for 3% of our energy, no chance. Yeah, but Chris, people will say, people will
2: say, and by the way, When I grew up in California, right, I remember being like 12 years old and the smog even then was so bad, it hurt to breathe in deep. California's air is a lot cleaner than it used to be. You don't have that haze over LA. People will say there is no amount of money that is not worth clean air and and cutting down on global warming. Exactly, and fossil
5: fuels have been actually major drivers of clean air. Well, both catalytic converters, some technology that made engines burn much cleaner, natural gas displacing coal and simply cleaner combustion has driven air quality in the United States is low, is better today than every year since I was born so it's yeah. it's in the low income countries yeah. that don't have modern hydrocarbons Gene? those are the places where yeah, I would, would
4: say I think largely uh, there's there's a critical piece that is being missed in this conversation, and ultimately uh, there's the math around can this happen? Can it not happen? Uh, we could probably debate that for. No, what's uh, more the critical the piece? Hour. That's why you're here. Bring the, it up. Yeah, the critical. Yeah, so the critical piece <laughs> is <not> this. I'm not perfect. <laughs> his, yeah, his master plan three is a roadmap to where Tesla's going, uh, and, and uh, Gordon's right in in the way that you know he's he's promoting the company. Ultimately, uh, he's showing his hand where he wants to go, and you can uh, clearly uh, full self driving is not where he wanted wanted it to be from five years ago. Uh, That's true. The robo taxi, but those are all things that he's been pursuing since that plan came out. So you need to read between the lines. Can I jump in? Can I jump in here? No, no, Gordon, Gordon, if I may. What does this plan tell us about where uh, Musk wants to go? And the answer is, they want to have HVAC. They want to. They're talking about heat pumps in this. They want to do uh, grid-scale batteries. Uh, J.B. Strobel just got nominated from, from Redwood onto Tesla's board. That's going to go to vote in the middle of May. That's a big deal related to batteries in Tesla. And then I think a third piece, they talked uh, in the in the report about planes and, and ships. It sounds well, audacious. Planes are
2: totally—nobody I've talked to in aviation thinks it can work. Agree Because you can't turn I think the, the plane still, the yeah. only The, the commercial Agreed. airline model re- relies on turning the plane around quickly, filling with people, you know, sun country, going up to see G. Gene in Minneapolis, Gordon, you want to make a appreciate point. the shout out there. <laughs>
0: yeah, I
3: mean, yeah let me let that, me make a few points, Gene. If I can't, let me make a few points. So, Elon Musk in 2016 put out a painted black video that was about three and a half minutes long, had a Tesla driving itself around the city, and said the guy is only in the driver's seat for legal reasons. We now know that video was completely doctored. Th- th- Elon that's not Musk the point, Gordon. 2019. He, I'm sorry. I don't think that's not yeah, my so point. Elon my Musk point said in 2019 is 2019. He was going to have a million robo-taxis on the road in 2020. He used that to raise billions of dollars. There's not one robo-taxi on the road today. Elon Musk said he was gonna have a Cybertruck. Elon Musk said he was gonna have a Roadster. He's made a number of promises he hasn't kept. He's used these promises to raise capital. And this master plan three we believe, with all these different promises, is going to be used to try to build. Hey, Gordon, Gordon Cage just saying he's Gordon
2: Cage is saying promise. The the Cybertruck going to come promise. out. He's just behind schedule. We we have a pandemic.
3: Gordon,
4: let's
2: talk about
3: things he promised that he didn't deliver on. He had the uh, he had the solar panels right. He had a fake solar panel that he used to buy Solar City. He filed a 13D instead of a 13G. Clear violation of securities laws. He did the painted black video. These aren't things where he made promises that he delivered on later. These are just mistruths. So you gotta take these things with a grain of salt. He's like the kid in fourth grade who said his dad beat Michael Jordan in a game of one-on-one. When somebody says Elon Musk says, you really gotta criticize what he's saying because his history is a pathological problem with the truth.
4: Uh, Gordon, uh, how about the electrification of cars? How is was that prediction? Well, I think for that's
3: been driven by governments. I don't think you give Elon Musk credit for that. Governments have implemented policies that a lot of people argue Border on the line of socialism, yeah. forcing companies to do this. I don't think that's an Elon Musk thing. I think that's a government. I don't thing. have
2: a uh, Gene. I hear what you're and, saying. And, and, Go ahead, Chris. I like. By the way, I like and, the I mean, fact that he laid it out. You know what? Elon Musk makes electric cars. Oh, he makes solar panels and he makes batteries. So here's this document saying, you know what, we need more of electric cars, solar panels, and batteries. I'm going to give the guy credit, Gordon, for like he's he's out there. This is me. This is what I do, Chris. I love it. And he's got numbers in
5: his report, Brian. I agree with all of that. The problem, of course, is, is the numbers. One of the, one of the things that's in there is batteries or this huge storage mechanism that are going to smooth out the variabilities of wind and solar. A typhoon hit Southeast Asia and you have a week where you don't have sun. You, you can't use wind power because you've got unsteady or too high winds and then huge rains. And today, all of the batteries on our planet can store just over one minute of global electricity. And if everyone hits their bold plans, we'll get to 10 minutes of electricity storage in 2030. So how are we going to get to eight days, 10 years after? The chance is no chance, 10 years after by 2040. Well, I I think it was, we got to go, guys.
2: Yeah, I think it was Jeff Curry. I'm going to misstate it, but whatever you're directionally correct, as we say, I think to your four trillion, we spent $4 trillion on renewables globally and fossil fuel use has gone from 83 to 82%. It's knocked 1%. Off. listen, Chris, Gene, Gordon, great discussion, guys. Passionate topic. I appreciate you coming on, and I hope you all read the document. Did your homework. Thank you.
4: Yeah, I did. And there we go. Okay, they all Thank get
2: they all get A's. All right, up next. Do you want to guess how much the IRS is about to spend of your tax money to collect more of your taxes? Think 11 figures. Plus, a scary new stat and report about small business bankruptcies starting to soar last call. We're back right after this.
6: Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is,
7: I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there.
6: Because
0: if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak.
6: Then this is your sign to call. Text or chat 988 for free confidential support. Anytime you don't have to hide how you feel.
2: All right, welcome back. An $80 billion overhaul for one of America's most loved institutions, the IRS. The plan unveiled today is geared toward cracking down an uncollected tax revenue that the Biden administration says it can use to fund projects like taking on climate change. The IRS says it's going to use $80 billion to hire more than 7,000 new enforcement employees, upgrade its technology and infrastructure, as well as increase the number of audits on those making above $400,000. So how might this impact you? Joining us now is New York Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis, representing Staten Island. I love it. Uh, Congresswoman, thank you very much for, for coming on the program. Uh, you're also one of the leading Republican voices calling for raising the limit on state and local tax, what we call SALT deductions. They're capped now at $10,000. 1st off, I want to hit the IRS news. I know there's a lot of media. It's been like, they're going to hire 87,000 agents. No, they're not. But it doesn't seem possible that there's no way this doesn't also raise audits on middle class people.
8: Absolutely. Uh, Secretary Yellen came before our Ways and Means Committee last month, and she basically said that the percentage would remain the same across the board. And that means that uh, 90% of the audits will be for those under $400,000 a year. So that is really what we've been saying all along, that this was going to increase the audits for the middle class. And President Biden keeps talking about those earning over $400,000, but the fact is it's 90%. That is below the 400,000 that are being audited. Now he's trying to basically pay down our debt by, you know, shaking down the middle class. Really trying to find every single penny and and that he possibly can from hardworking Americans. He's not looking at pro pro growth tax policy. He's not looking for better trade deals that can open up new markets for American products overseas. Those are ways that we can increase our GDP without hitting the hardworking American over the head again. So I, I, I get concerned because they know that it's the middle class that have the hardest time fighting these audits. They could be completely innocent and done nothing wrong. Now they got to pay tons of well, money in lawyers and they know that they'll just end up settling. If, and if they exactly go the, what they're
2: looking for. To be fair, Congressman, if they go to the audit phase, generally the IRS will just send a letter, sort of like, can you explain this? Can you explain that? Uh, I may or may not have received them. And they, they can be intimidating because it's like, okay, there's some nameless, faceless gigantic governmental organization that's sending me basically a form letter and six months later they get back to you. Here's here's what I think a lot of people that are not watching in the New York or Boston or California areas. If you're watching in Dallas or Davenport, Iowa, whatever, $400,000 is a lot of money. We get that. But $400,000 in Staten Island is a lot different than $400,000 in Kansas City. Why are we so obsessed with these fixed dollar rates if we're going to go after, quote, the rich, can we, like, 400,000 in New Jersey or Staten Island is a dentist and, a, and a, an accountant. Yeah,
8: that, that's absolutely right. And, and that's why I would make the argument that if this is truly about going after the wealthy, they have more than enough agents to do that, especially considering that 90% of the audits are for those earning 400,000 or less currently.
2: Let's talk about this, this uh, salt. Cap deduction. Now, when it came out, it was part of the Trump, quote, tax cuts for the rich. You always hear that. I can I can tell you this much that for a lot of people in Staten Island and everywhere else, New Jersey, they, they may have gotten their top line federal rate reduced a little bit. But the the capping of the SALT deduction probably actually ended up raising taxes. I called it actually the blue state payback at the time. You are a Republican, but I've got to imagine this is something that you could probably support is raising or eliminating that cap, going back to where we were?
8: I would certainly, in, a, in an ideal world, we would eliminate it. However, I think in a realistic world, uh, we are working toward uh, seeing if we can increase that deduction. Perhaps we can look at doubling that uh, amount for married couples. It's still $10,000, whether you're married or not. Um, and then on top of that, I would look at possibly, uh, maybe we can set it on some type of income. If you earn a certain income, then you 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 have a greater you, you're allowed to deduct your local taxes and your property taxes. I can tell you right now, Staten Island, uh, an average family like you mentioned, just four hundred thousand dollars in income, which is a lot for this community. Um, they they would probably be more in the uh, twenty five thousand dollar range. So the ten thousand salt deduction is just simply not enough, and yeah. this is something to provide a lot of relief, but I think we also have to be mindful here that this is not a license for our mayor and our governor to continue to raise taxes. The federal government is going to allow American people to keep more money in their pockets, um, yeah. then we don't want the city and the state taking it with the other hand, and I think that's really the conundrum that we're, he- we're-, we're dealing with right now. But certainly, as a New Yorker, we wanna see this yeah. type of relief going to the middle-class families, and we have a bipartisan anti- Uh, I mean, a bipartisan salt caucus to push for this
2: right now. I I like it. Um, You know, I wish there was more people in the media that understood taxes because I keep hearing all the Trump tax cuts for the rich. If you live in Staten Island, your constituents, southern Brooklyn, New Jersey, Connecticut, you probably ended up paying more overall because of that that deduction. Uh, We're going to call you a salt shaker, a mover and a salt shaker, if that's all right. We'll get you back on after that caucus. Congresswoman, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, it really was a tax hike in disguise for a lot of people. All right, meantime, don't try to raise the retirement age in France. Look at this. Violent protests around the country. It is all over President Macron's pension overhaul. Today, dozens of demonstrators stormed BlackRock's offices in Paris. That's that's BlackRock right there. Protesters are waving red flares and flags and chanting anti-Macron slogans. They targeted BlackRock because of its private Pension fund activity. The demonstrators reportedly left the building after only about a half an hour, but the point was made. It wasn't just BlackRock that protesters targeted. As you can see they briefly torched, well, set fire to one of Macron, President Macron's favorite restaurants, La Rotonde. Look at that. The fire, thankfully, was put out. Protesters also blocked roads to an airport and reportedly threw dead rats at City Hall. You gotta hand it to the French. They know how to protest. Anyway, this is day 11 of this, and President Macron still has not backed down. For those who have not been following the story, the French government raised the retirement age by two years, from 62 to 64. That's it. Two years. And even at 64, it is still lower than most other, or I think all, European nations. Macron says change is needed to keep the pension system in the black. Still, the polls show a wide majority of the French people oppose the law. Shocking, I know which McConnell's government pushed through without a vote. That's probably key here. For reactions, bring in Andrew Biggs. He is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, the former principal deputy commissioner of the Social Security Administration. Um, Andrew, this is something, you know, th- this is not a small thing. And you're trying to raise the retirement age by two years. What happens if some politician here tries to touch Medicare or Social
9: Security? Well, we're we're seeing the same thing right now. I mean, there are members of Congress who are trying to cut a bipartisan deal to fix Social Security, and that would involve raising the Social Security retirement age. They've had a lot of trouble getting any support for it. So these are really, really difficult issues to solve, whether it's in France or here in the U.S.
2: Yeah, well, okay. So there's it's difficult to, to solve, Andrew, or is it impossible to solve? I, I don't know of well, any yes, politician, <laughs> unless they're on a... Political death wish is going to bring this up.
9: Well, we're, about, we're going to find out. We're going to find out in France, or we're going to find out here. The, the reality with both of these retirement systems is they're struggling financially, you have more and more retirees, fewer workers supporting them. In the US, we're paying 12% Social Security tax. In France, they're paying a 28% tax. So there is a question of how much higher taxes can go if you want to keep these systems running with the benefits and the retirement ages that they have, but these are very, very politically sensitive issues. and you know The, the French are very good at protesting. And you know it's easy to be sort of entertained by it, but it's the same dynamic here, that people don't want to lose the benefits they've been promised, but they also don't want to pay the taxes to finance them.
2: Are you saying that people want stuff
9: without paying for stuff? No. People very much want stuff without paying for it. You know, we've, we've known for 40 years in, in the US that the social security system had to be reformed. We've done precisely nothing since then. You know, Neither of the, the major presidential candidates now on the Republican or the Democratic mm-hmm. side really have plans to fix social security. Well, Macron has hit the crisis where he said, I can't wait in the political process anymore. And he's forced it through. But both there and here, it's it's the question of a political process that, that has failed in trying to keep these systems on track.
2: And there have been some fairly high-level politicians who have suggested eliminating the cap on Social Security. Right now, whatever the cap, I think it's, a, what is it, 157000 or whatever the number is, where after that you're not taxed for Social Security. They want to basically t- eliminate that, saying, well, the rich can afford it, do their fair share. That turns Social Security into a... Another income tax.
9: That
4: can't be
2: constitutional or legal,
9: could it? Well, it's legal. It it, it is legal. It could be done. Um, But the Social Security tax currently goes up to $160,000. You pay taxes on earnings Mm -hmm. up to that level, and you only earn benefits on earnings up to that level. If you eliminate that it, that's essentially a 12 percentage point increase in the top tax rate. Yeah, now, I think that's bad economic policy. But even if you're a progressive, you're never getting more taxes than that. So you can say goodbye to Medicare for all, Green New Deal, yeah. free, The for There well, simply isn't enough money the, to go around and they have to prioritize. It just
2: turns it into a, another income tax. Andrew, good discussion. The music tells me we got the hook. Andrew, thank you. Thank you. All right, still ahead. Why are small businesses suddenly going bankrupt? at record levels. The author of an alarming
7: new study will join us next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.
2: All right. More cracks may be emerging in the American economy. Businesses are filing for bankruptcy at a record pace. In fact, UBS analysts say that private filings year to date have gone above their COVID peak by a wide margin. UBS also writes that it are the smallest of firms facing the most severe pressure from rising interest rates, persistent inflation and slowing growth. Joining us now is one of the people behind that note, Matthew Mish, head of credit strategy at UBS. Matthew um, thanks for joining us. Listen, we're kind of a generalist money news program. You probably didn't think your credit note was going to get so much attention, but it's getting a lot of attention. What are we looking at when we talk about private filings
1: rising? Yeah, thanks for having uh, me on, Brian. And let me boil it down. So, private filings are basically bankruptcy filings. That's Chapter 7, 11, or 15. Um, that's a legal proceeding that companies initiate when they're under stress. And so, Private bankruptcy filings, these are private firms. And the unique data that we have from UBS Evidence Labs suggests that these filings are up to a rate of about eight per week. Now, keep in mind, many of these firms have subsidiaries. So it could be dozens of entities that are filing. The way that we track it, it's really one filing. And so uh, eight compares with uh, just two filings uh, on average per week for public firms, right, for listed firms uh, that trade on uh, stock exchanges, um, and so there's a big difference that you're seeing in private filings, which we think essentially indicates that there's uh, rising stress in small and mid-sized enterprises uh, relative to your large bulge bracket firms. Many of your viewers, uh, you know, will be invested in these types of firms. They're generally uh, firms that would be in uh, the S and P 500, for example.
2: What, what can we take away from your report? I mean, we go going into the credit. I mean, we're doing doing sort of deep dives. We got a lot of people watching you know, that, that are not financial professionals. They just have a passing interest in money or maybe they, they like me, who knows? What, what are we extrapolating out of this, Matthew?
1: Yeah, I think that the underlying message is that there is weakness in the SME sector. And you would think that that's a canary in the coal mine for future credit stress for really three reasons, right? The first is bear in mind that that sector got a lot of support from fiscal policy and the Main Street Lending Program, and that's now rolled off. The second reason is really that these firms are very sensitive to rising interest rates because they have floating rate debt in a very large proportion. And then the third is really that they have less funding options, right? These are entities that generally have to go to a bank uh, or to uh, direct yeah. lenders. They can't go to syndicated bond or loan markets. So, so how, bottom quickly, line is-
2: how bad, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm getting the hook, but I got to ask you this. what? How bad is this banking issue if at all, gonna affect, make it worse, in other words.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. It's going to make it worse. Um, our estimates are 50 to 55% of all loans outstanding to SMEs uh, are basically uh, given or granted uh, by small and regional banks. So if mm. the view is because of the bank failures, you will now see tighter credit, fewer institutions that are smaller, at least in size, willing to make that loan to a smaller midsize enterprise and I would expect this trend to get worse, and we'll certainly be watching closely in terms of the magnitude of the change in coming weeks. Amazing.
2: There's so many elements to this rising rate story. The Fed had its foot on the gas pedal, just screaming along an icy highway, and now they're trying to hit the brakes all at once. Matthew Mish, really appreciate it. Interesting report. Thank you very much. All right, staying Thanks, with small business, and a story that we are keeping a close eye on, of course, is Chicago, its new mayor elect and continued rising crime in one of America's. Most important, arguably, look at that, most beautiful, but at times, most dangerous cities. The new mayor was the softer on-crime candidate and is looking for more things like mental health and social services over direct policing. Now, of course, crime not only takes a human toll, but it does take a business toll as well. If people don't feel safe, they may not go out, or maybe they'll leave town altogether. Joining us now is small business leader Sam Sanchez. He's the chair of government relations with the Illinois Restaurant Association. And the CEO of Third Coast Hospitality Group, Sam. Good to have you on. And we all want Mayor Johnson to succeed. I don't. People can be mad about the, the outcome, but he was elected. We need him in Chicago to succeed. You will work with the mayor. What will you recommend to him? Assuming and hopefully the mayor will listen.
10: Yeah. I mean, well, number one, congratulate the, uh, uh, Mayor-elect uh, Johnson for for his uh, win. Uh, definitely, he reached out. He reached out to major associations and chambers. Uh, knows that the business community is very important to the success of the city of Chicago. A uh, couple of things is uh, you know we, we we know about his plan on taxes. I mean, it's not the first time we face a challenge with uh, elected officials. Uh, I guess as you know, some of our colleagues mentioned uh, we just need a longer runway there to get to some of the changes that are going to be coming. It cannot happen overnight. Um, there's a lot of a lot, lot, of good things that, that could happen to in Chicago. I want to change this narrative about the Chicago not being a friendly and the mayor elects not going to be a friendly to the businesses. This is, the, once we sit down, we're done with politics, we're going into policies, we will... Talk policies, uh, Brian, and we'll make yeah. sure that the mayor understands our, our points, and we can continue inviting businesses. To and that's to but and but you got
2: my point about about the safety aspect, Sam. And and I, you know, if I'm going to Encanto or if I'm going to Old Crow Smokehouse, I'm just going to name all your restaurants because I appreciate you coming on on West Kinsey Thank Street. You. I want to feel safe. And there's been even so, and those are these are high end areas that most of your places are in. How can we improve? Safety, because that will improve
10: business. Okay, I mean, definitely, definitely we need to talk about safety. I mean, I mean, we could go back and talk about what happened two years ago with Jocelyn, Jocelyn Adams, seven-year-old little girl shot in a McDonald's waiting for a happy meal. Eight-year-old Melissa Ortega crossing the street shot by a three-time arrest person that was arrested for carjacking. Uh, uh, what we've been asking the administration, which is the Cook County administration, and I think that this is where I believe the mayor could help us out a lot, Mayor-elect could help us out a lot, is to keep the repeat violent, known repeat violent offenders behind bars. Uh, that will help us out a lot. I mean, we understand that there's 6,000 uh, detainees on electronic monitors, 20% are probably the bad ones, 80% are good, but the 20%, we're looking at 1,200 really repeat violent offenders. We gotta keep them behind bars because we cannot continue to see our children being shot. 300 children were shot, uh, many of them, dozens, dozens have been murdered. 3-year-old, uh, 12-year-old, 10-year-old, it just goes, you know, nonstop. stop uh, mm-hmm. We could change the, the narrative of uh, uh, of the violent, the people who believe, they believe in violence, by keeping them behind bars. But not only that, the rescue of young children. Just an example, and uh, Melissa Ortega, an 8-year-old little girl that was murdered by a 16-year-old kid. Not only did the justice system failed the family, Melissa Ortega, and... and but they also failed yeah. a sixteen-year-old kid not to rescue him from the life of crime. Uh, so uh, it's a combination. It's a combination, and I think this is where we're headed. Uh, Mayor luck has that idea, and I think we're going to work together to make this
2: happen. Let's so businesses have got to flex your your money power to make it safe. So you can, by the way, not just patrons make sure you can get the workers at all these great places like Encanto that you have. Sam Sanchez, thank you for telling the story. Some very heartbreaking things to hear, but we appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Chicago. Thank you you for know. The time. We're not. not, By the way, people last night were like, why are you bashing Chicago? We're not. We love Chicago and we want it to do well. Still ahead, the jobs report that Wall Street to Main Street to Jay Powell and the Fed are all holding their breath. Stick around. All right, welcome back. It is time now for a very quick last call watch list. Levi Strauss suffering a tear in its first quarter results. Promotions cutting away at margins for the jeans retailer. In addition to rising costs of labor transport materials, Levi's also delivered a cautious outlook. All of that resulted in Levi's stock having its worst day since going public in 2019, down 16%. Levi's CEO, Chip Berg, spoke out on Mad Money with Jim a bit earlier.
9: There's no question the sector has been hammered since the fear of recession and the impact of inflation started. You know, the core Levi's consumer is a $50,000 income and up household, and that consumer is still demonstrating real resilience.
2: All right, Levi's definitely a company to keep an eye on, especially because this. Remember this. Levi's was a company and still is in some ways. They got a lot of negative attention for pushing out a former top executive who says she was punished for speaking out about school closures and other COVID issues. Some people called for a boycott of Levi's over what they perceived as corporate censorship. Levi's denied it. But look at these numbers. You do wonder, is there some kind of impact on Levi's that is being felt? Who knows? I guess we'll find out. Time for tomorrow's news tonight. And Tomorrow, it's going to be all about jobs. Even though the stock market is closed for Good Friday, happy Easter, by the way, All eyes are on the March jobs reports, due at 8.30 tomorrow morning. Eastern time, economists are expecting 238,000 jobs added in the month of March, with the unemployment rate holding steady at 3.6%. Now, if it does come in at that number, it would be considerably fewer than the 311,000 that were added last month. And also keep this in mind. We've also now had eight straight weeks with jobless claims above 200,000 and the number of open jobs fell below 10 million for the first time in years. What is all this telling us? Starting us not to help break it down ahead of the meeting tomorrow. is former Council of Economic Advisors acting chair, Tyler Goodspeed and Farr, Miller and Washington president, CEO Michael Farr, I believe, making his inaugural appearance on last call. Michael, we appreciate you getting up early and staying up late or at least coming on TV late. Uh, are we seeing serious deterioration signs in the American economy or just just a blip?
6: Brian, it's a great honor to be on Last Call. This is a great treat to be on again with you. Um, uh, You know, we're seeing, I think, the unemployment uh, or employment picture slow a little bit. It's getting a little bit weaker, and that's sort of something the Fed's been looking to have happen. As long as unemployment uh, or employment has been as full as it is, and unemployment's been around 3.5%, We have wage increases. There's competition for every potential employee out there. Employers have to pay more, and they start to raise prices at their stores, and this begins to feed on inflation. So as we've begun to see, I think, some of the expectations for future growth come down. We've seen some job cuts, and I think one of the things the Fed's trying to do is weaken that demand for employees uh, and uh, we're beginning, I think, to see a crack in it. So not crisis levels yet. But I think that the Fed probably would be happier seeing it substantially, yeah. unemployment rates substantially higher than it is.
2: The, you know, some of the anger, tire at the Fed is is bipartisan. I mean, Elizabeth Warren has come out and said the Fed is basically going to crash the economy or, or might crash the economy because they got to bring down inflation. Uh, do, you, do you think that's going to be the case? I mean, you, you, we just did the small business segment. There's some, a lot of really worrying signs out there.
0: There are a lot of really worrying signs. And I think that the the problem is the Fed doesn't directly control inflation. They don't directly control unemployment. What they do control is a nominal interest rate. And through their control of that nominal interest rate, they can hope to influence aggregate demand and thereby influence inflation. The the tricky thing for the Fed is that wage inflation, which seems to be running around about 5%, that kind of sets a floor below which it's hard for price inflation to go. Because for price inflation to go persistently below wage inflation means that companies are going to have to be accepting negative margins. And if they don't accept negative margins and they just sort of let price inflation go down to wage inflation, then the Fed's going to have to hike rates by even more. So, so this is why it's... Uh, it's it's a tricky situation for the Fed, and unfortunately, the labor market is is a potential casualty of their effort to get inflation back under control.
2: Yeah, and that's the grim yeah. part of it, Michael. And I got an email from a from a friend of mine, a guy named Sean Johnson, a guide on global Sean. If you're watching, go Hokies, thank you very much. And, but and, and Sean was a money manager forever, Michael, and he and he mentioned something that I haven't really said or heard in a while on CNBC, which is, even with this huge spike, we're pretty much where. Interest rates have been historically sort of the median for 50 years. Is there any way that we are maybe because we are TV right, exaggerating the yep. impact of these of these rates?
6: I think you have to take every one of these rate pictures uh, pictures in, in in its own time, right? You have to see them in the moment. And so where we are, relative to where we were, we've got rates moving up a little bit. Historically, certainly in my career, Sully, these rates are low. Uh, this inflation rate is, is still reasonably low. We're not on a tear yet. Expectations are the Fed's gonna be able to contain inflation, but they're gonna do that by destroying demand. They just keep making money more expensive so people stop spending it. Uh, wages probably will begin to slow. But, you know, you go back to Tyler's point about the the number of unemployed. Tyler, my work says that about five and a quarter percent unemployment to five and a half percent unemployment, wage growth begins to move at the same speed of GDP growth and CPI so that that one is not driving the other. You know, it's not as inflationary. So I think it's got to go higher. Unemployment's got to go higher. Tyler,
2: quick response.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is, this is, as I was saying, this, it's, it's hard for you to get, uh, for the Fed to get inflation meaning back down to, to 2% if wage inflation is running at 5%. And at the end of the day, yep. labor is about 60 to 70% of, of company costs. So it's hard to get inflation, price inflation yep. to 2% when one of your principal costs is running at 5%. Yeah, and what do you? You either so lay
2: people take off. Yeah, I know you. You don't once you give somebody a pay increase, you don't take it back. So you got to lay people off and then rehire other people at lower costs. Otherwise, I don't see how you bring it down. Tyler, Michael, great conversation. Uh, we'll see what happens to that number. Thanks. By the way, tomorrow morning, and Lucky Joe and Andrew and Becky, because tomorrow morning Squawk Box will be live. Eight. To 9 a.m. They're going to be. Remember, the stock market is closed. Bond market trades a little bit. Stock market is closed. Guess what? CNBC open for business. Numbers out at 8:30. They'll be on live squawk. 8 to 9 a.m. All right. Let's lighten it up a bit and head to Quicker Than The Ticker. All the news that matters in the world of business and a few stories that we just thought were cool. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock and go. Sweet Green, the salad chain, is renaming a new menu item after Chipotle, the burrito chain, sued them for trademark infringement. Follow that. The Chipotle Chicken Burrito Bowl is now the Chicken and Chipotle Pepper Bowl. Part of the deal to resolve the lawsuit. How's that for lawyers? Walmart saying it will add thousands of EV charging stations at its stores by 2030. They already have 1,300. Next up, Apple set to open its first retail location in Mumbai, India this month. India is the world's second biggest smartphone market. Remember that new Starbucks olive oil coffee line that Howard Schultz recently said this about? This is a transformational moment in the history of our company. Allegedly, it's not going over so well in people's stomachs. Some on social media are complaining of stomach issues after trying the new drink. Starbucks has yet to respond to us for comment. 138 years. That's how long one Michigan family has gone without having a single girl on one side of the family, a baby, until now. Yeah, on the on the dad's side, they had not had a girl born to that family since I think it was 1885 or 1886. So congrats, I don't know how many boys they had, but congratulations to them. All right, coming up, we're going to go back in time to the sweet smell of gold's triumphant return to the world stage 127 years ago tonight. Do you know what happened? Take a guess. Tweet us at lastcallCNBC. You got two minutes. Send them in. See if any of you get it right. 127 years ago tonight, think gold. We're back after this. Welcome back. Quick news alert for you. Breaking. We're live, folks. Tesla looking for a switch up to its board the automaker is nominating J.B. Straubel. The name sounds familiar. It's the former chief technology officer to the board of directors. Straubel spent 14 years as Tesla's CTO. If confirmed, he will succeed Hiromichi Mizumo, who is not standing for re-election. So a little tweaking there of the Tesla board. All right. We asked you before the break, and only one of you got it right. You know what happened 127 years ago today? Well, P.D. Coleman Jr. Phoenix is, by the way, it's a very cool race car, Formula One. I think that's the 77 Terrell. Tell me that anyway, guessed it first. The first modern Olympic Games kicked off in Athens. Let's take you back in time. To April 6, 1896, the King of Greece had a crowd of 60,000. Welcome athletes in 13 different countries. One of them was Team USA, sort of. We did not have an official team, we had a, an American delegation. Most of them were, by the way, from either like Boston or Princeton University. But hey, they ended up winning more medals than any other country. Good job. Since then, the Olympic Games, of course, become a massive global event, a major business. The IOC reeled in $2.8 billion in revenue from last year's Winter Olympics in Beijing and $7.6 billion for the 2020 Summer Games in Tokyo. Okay, folks, tomorrow the market is closed. We'll see you Monday. So have a peaceful Passover, a happy Easter,
7: great three-day weekend. See you Monday. Take care. This podcast is supported by FedEx.